Well, there you are. It's uh, better coming from him than me, isn't it? <laughs> With a few little illustrations in the background. I thought perhaps we should set the scene here. This is one of the many, many parables that Jesus spoke. And of course, a parable is really simply a story from life that illustrates a point. And uh, Jesus was very well known for using parable, uh, parables. Uh, uh, is a parable something you might know? Try parables. Jesus was well known for using para, para, I'm going I'm to have a lot of trouble with this word now, aren't I? Parables to make a point. Uh, David was trying to help me, but that wasn't actually a lot of help, David. It makes it even worse. <laughs> oh, dear. He'll, he'll get me making all the wrong emphasis if he's not careful and all that kind of thing. <laughs> well, this parable, we believe, actually took place in the house of a Pharisee. And you might ask, how come Jesus ended up in the house of a Pharisee? Well... He was actually a very well-known teacher and it's highly likely that he was actually invited into local synagogues to teach. As you know, some people actually called him rabbi or teacher and some authors reckon he was actually a fully qualified rabbi, although I doubt that that is actually the case because there's no biblical evidence for it. But because of his wisdom, and he grew in wisdom and favour with the Lord and with man, we're told, after he was about 12 years old. So by the time he was 30 years of age, he must have been very well known and respected as a teacher. And it was an honour for a ruler of the Pharisees to invite a synagogue speaker into his home. And that's what happened. Because if we have a look in Luke 16, verse, sorry, Luke 14, verse 1, we see that Jesus was sharing bread in the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees. Now, these houses were actually pretty fine. Uh, there have been some excavated in Capernaum. And uh, we believe that they were made of very high-quality materials. Hence, they've lasted this long, and we're discovering them in excavations now. They tended to be designed around a central, um, a central area, which was, that was outdoors, so the house kind of went around a, a square in the, in the middle. And they were colonnaded, and on the ground floor, they had a very large reception room and another large banqueting room. So Jesus would have been the invited guest of an important ruler of the Pharisees, a rich person living in a large house with the entertainment area on the ground floor, living quarters on the next floor, and then a flat roof. That's where they went, of course, on summer evenings because it was cooler and there was an outside staircase up to the roof. Now, it's highly likely that there was quite a large crowd, maybe 50, 60, perhaps even more than that, who were fellowshipping after Jesus had taught in the synagogue. So he has an audience of Pharisees, of lawyers, sometimes called scribes, and there were disciples there as well. So it was a pretty fancy affair. And Jesus took some big risks because 
During the time that he was there, which runs from uh, the first verse in chapter 14 of Luke through to, I think, chapter 17, verse 10. And there's about nine or ten parables that he uses during that period of time. (coughs) And actually, as he progresses through these parables, he's upsetting the Pharisees more and more. And we see that by the time we get to the end of chapter 16, they're actually ridiculing him and speaking out against him. So Jesus had the guts actually to offend his host because his host didn't have the truth. And it takes a lot of courage to do that, of course, when you're in good company. He even healed a sick man. And it was the Sabbath. And under the the law, the Pharisees had determined that doing things like that was work. And you couldn't work on the Sabbath. So sick people should have waited until after the Sabbath to receive their healing. But Jesus said to the Pharisees, if any one of you has an ox and fall into a ditch, aren't you going to rescue it even if it is the Sabbath? Which of course they would because oxen were valuable in those days. And then he goes on to tell a series of parables. The, the, the uh, very famous parable of the prodigal son was one of the parables that Jesus told at this time. Then when we get to Luke chapter 16, we come upon this very strange parable. At least it is strange to us. But remember that the reason why Jesus used parables was that they were familiar stories to his audience. So what would be familiar about this story? First, we have a wealthy man who employs somebody to manage his affairs. Now that was actually quite common in the day. There were a small number of very wealthy people. Some of them were Romans, but the rest, by and large, were the religious leaders of the time. Some made wealth as merchants, This man may well have been a merchant because the debts that were owed were debts owed on olive oil and other commodities. So it wasn't unusual at all for a wealthy man to employ a manager or a steward. Now this steward had been accused of either being incompetent or unethical. Not not 100% certain either. He may have been incompetent and as such wasted the wealth of his employer or he might have been unethical and engaged in dishonest practices. Whatever. Word came to the employer that his manager was no good and the employer determined that he was actually going to terminate the employment of his manager. So he fronts him and he accuses him and then he says, you go away and ready your accounts to be handed over to somebody else. Now that wasn't terribly unfamiliar for the listeners of Jesus. But then we get to the next part which says, and I'm reading here from 
the New Living Translation, the manager thought to himself, now what? My boss has fired me. I don't have the strength to dig ditches and I'm too proud to beg. In other words, I don't have any other alternative. You know, I'm a white-collar worker. I don't know how to do the blue-collar jobs. And there aren't any jobs for a sacked manager going. Ah, I know how to ensure that I have plenty of friends who will give me a home when I'm fired. So he invited each person who owed money to his employer to come and discuss the situation. And as you know, he then asked each person how much they owed and then said, come down here and you can sign your IOU with a different figure in it. Now, it was very common in those days too for debtors to write out their own IOU. So they would write it out and, um, and sign it. And that wasn't unusual either. Another thing that wasn't terribly unusual was that in times of distress, wealthy people would often write off a portion of the debt of their debtors. So when the debtors were invited into the manager's office, when they were asked to write a new um, IOU, they wouldn't have been perplexed by that at all. They would have been grateful for the generosity of their employer. And another thing too, monetary exchange or monetary favours were used as a basis for cementing friendship or relationship. And do we see that in cultures today, many Asian cultures, for example, the, the giving of red envelopes at, at New Year with money in them. That's, that's a social means of cementing friendships, of, of saying, I want to have a healthy relationship with you. Exchange of gifts in general has that purpose. And of course, we do it in our own society today. So that the manager brought in all of the debtors and he said, take your bill and quickly write a different figure owed in it. Now, as it turns out, the two examples there, although one of them was a reduction of 50% by volume and the other one was a reduction of 20%, scholars say the actual reduction in debt in monetary terms was about 500 denarii, which was a, a denomination of, of coinage uh, used at the time. It was equivalent to about one and a half years' wages. All right, so work out what you earn each year, about one and a half years' wages. So it was a fairly substantial sum. Now, it's interesting here because the word which is translated take your bill, everywhere else in the Bible is translated welcome. And so really what the manager was saying to the debtors was receive welcomingly, receive welcomingly, that's a hard word to say, receive welcomingly your bill and rewrite it. That's in verse 4. When you go to verse 9, you see that the manager was hoping that he would be received welcomingly into the households of the debtors after he got fired. So he was setting up his own social welfare system. There wasn't a social welfare system at the time, he was setting up his own social welfare system by building relationship with the debtors in the hope that they would receive him welcomingly. 
That's very interesting, isn't it? Are you sitting on the edge of your seat for what's coming next? <laughs> Not really? You should be, Barb. This is fascinating stuff. Don't ask me a question. I might answer it next week. <laughs> so, now we see that the employer actually commended the manager. And we think, that just doesn't fit with our sense of ethics today. You know what? You'd probably be jailed for embezzlement. Or at least sacked for incompetence. But in the parable, the employer actually commended the manager. It says in the New Living Translation, the rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. Now, maybe also translators might think about saying, well, the rich man had no other choice because all of the debtors thought the diminution in their debt was the result of the employer's generosity and he wasn't about to lose face. So you see how smart the manager was. He worked out that on the basis of the social mores of the time, in order to make sure that he would have a welcome in the future, that he uh, decided to get the debtors to reduce their debt. You see, he was, he was actually pretty smart, wasn't he? Right? Because he, he, only, he would have understood the social mores of the time and he actually used those in order to make his future a different future to what it might otherwise have been. And you see, then Jesus goes on to say this. It is true that the children of the world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of the light. Here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. See, here's this word welcome again. And so Jesus never condemned the manager because the manager had used what he understood of the social environment of the day to ensure his own social welfare program. That was actually a wise thing to do. We might argue about the ethics, but in the context, there's not that much of an issue. However, it was the shrewdness or the wisdom of the manager, not his behaviour, that Jesus was pointing to. Right? It was the shrewdness or wisdom of the manager that Jesus was pointing to. The point of his parable was not whether or not the behaviour was ethical behaviour. The point of the parable was that we should be shrewd like them. We who are in the kingdom of God should be shrewd like those who are outside the kingdom of God in the way in which we use what God has entrusted to us as his Stewards or managers. What are we meant to do with our earthly wealth? With what we manage on behalf of God? We're meant to use it not just to bless ourselves, but to establish the covenant. Says that in Deuteronomy 8.18. And also to spread the good news of the gospel to those who do not yet know it. And that could be the person walking down the road 
after church today. Or it could be somebody in Africa or India or Papua New Guinea. Those are the purposes for wealth. And what he's saying is, benefit them, make friends of them, so that you will be received welcomingly in heaven. So what Jesus is saying, if we observe the wisdom or shrewdness of the world, and if we apply wisdom or shrewdness in our own Christian walk, we will be using what God has released to us as his managers or stewards in order to expand the kingdom. Can you imagine the hundreds, the thousands of people who you influence through your life, where you sow seed, they actually end up accepting the invitation to become followers of Jesus Christ. They will be in heaven ready to receive you welcomingly. In the same way that the manager said to the debtors, receive your bill welcomingly, he did that in the hope that he would be received welcomingly into the earthly homes of the debtors once his employment was terminated. Well, the equivalent of termination of employment on earth, of course, is our own death. Because we can't do anything more by way of using the resources that God has released to us once we die. But if you can imagine all those people that you've influenced who have ultimately accepted the invitation of Jesus Christ to come into heaven, they are there to receive you welcomingly. Now that is not to say, of course, that you have to do this in order to get into heaven because works don't get you into heaven. Whether or not you are a wise steward of God's resources is actually irrelevant to whether or not you go to heaven. Accepting Jesus is the only condition. But let me tell you, if you anticipate to be received welcomingly into heaven, you better make sure that you're using the resources that God has entrusted you with for kingdom purposes. It's as simple as that. So where it says in the Bible that when our possessions are gone, that's really when we're separated from our possessions by death because you don't take it with you when you go. Right? There used to be a song about that. I used to play it on my country radio program. It was called You, you Can't Have a U-Haul Trailer With You When You Go. <laughs> U-Haul being the big franchise in the United States. If I could remember how it went, I might try and sing it for you, but probably not, eh? Probably not. So part of this um, parable too, Jesus goes on to say, if you're faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in large ones. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And how true that is, we observe that all the time. You can't trust somebody with something big if you can't trust them with something small. So here's one of the keys, actually, to becoming a steward of a whole lot of God's resources. Be faithful with whatever he's given you today. Use whatever he's given you today shrewdly for the purposes of the kingdom of God. If you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? You know, there's actually a hierarchy in heaven. The truth is, 
Some people will, as it were, just scrape in. People who have accepted Jesus Christ as their saviour, they'll scrape in okay. But I'll tell you what, if you want to be received welcomingly, you want to make sure that Jesus is not just your saviour, but also your Lord, and that you do as he directs you, and in particular, you follow his will when it comes to the way in which you manage the resources that have been released to you. If you're not faithful with other people's things, in this case with God's things, who should you be trusted, <coughs> sorry, why should you be trusted with things of your own? And then finally he says this, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Most translations say you cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon being an, um, an Aramaic word that Jesus used and, and most of the time it hasn't been translated into English or other languages. And mammon is not just money or wealth, but it's also the spirit behind it that causes us to be selfish with it. There's a thing about money, isn't there, that one of the real tests of generosity is whether we can part with money. We can often part with our time and our, our energy, even our talents, but we find it so hard to part with our money. What Jesus is saying here is that if we're focused only on worldly wealth, we will be enslaved to it, but actually we're meant to be the bond servant or the slave of Jesus Christ. Not in a slavish way, mind you, but in a willing way. A bond servant was somebody who was willingly a slave. And the master had the responsibility of meeting every need that the slave had for the whole of his or her life. And that's like the relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ. So we can't serve Two masters. We can't be focused on worldly wealth. We can't be focused on money and on the kingdom of God at the same time. One of the best antidotes there is to greed, and who knows that greed is one of the greatest sins on earth today. One of the best antidotes to greed is to simply be generous. Simply be generous. And certainly ask the Lord where you should direct your generosity. Now, of course, the Pharisees were known as lovers of money, and this upset them greatly. And Jesus went on then to tell the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. He tells two parables about attitudes towards money, which we won't go into today, but that just places it into some context. So the key to understanding this parable is first, just understand that the people who were listening to the parable would have been familiar with the general circumstances because Jesus used the everyday experience, the everyday things as a basis to make his points. Given the social circumstances and given his audience of Pharisees, scribes or lawyers and the disciples they would have understood what he was getting at. And by the way, this particular parable he addressed specifically to 
disciples, not the Pharisees, but they heard it because they ridiculed him for it. And so the whole point here, even though it seems ironic that Jesus didn't make any statements about the ethics of the situation, the point that Jesus made was not about ethics, but it was about the shrewdness or the wisdom with which we use the wealth that God has entrusted us with. He is our employer, we are his manager, and we are to use what he has released to us for kingdom purposes. And if we do, we will be received welcomely into heaven by all of those whose lives have been touched either directly or indirectly by the way in which we have actually disposed of our resources. Now, don't you think that's pretty good? I love it. I, um, I've, I've loved actually doing some research um, for Pride. I've actually put a, um, there's a, a blog up on our life blogs on our, our website. If you want to have a look at that, just go to ignitelife.church, ignitelife.church. Click on life blogs, and it is the most recent life blog which we've, we've loaded on that site. It just goes through, in one page actually, what I've done here this morning. But it might be worth having in case someone else asks you the same question. Well, our family went to a 